0: Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy. Welcome to another episode of The Fellow on Call, the Hemog Podcast. We're coming at you from Rulo University Medical Center. I'm Ronuk. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. And in today's episode, we continue on with our Hemonk emergencies. These are high-yield facts that we all need to know about things that may happen inevitably at the in the middle of the night when, you know, there's no one around to give us a hand. So hopefully by the end of these episodes, listeners, you're able to at least come up with a differential, continue to work through kind of the, the workup and management for these patients, and uh Ultimately, saved their lives. Guys, how how are we feeling? We're about halfway through this uh, onk emergencies kind of series, and you know we're we had a few episodes on our onc emergencies. We've got a few lined up here for uh, in regards to heme emergencies for our listeners. How are we feeling?
1: I'm feeling really good, and you know I think the heme
0: emergencies
1: portion of this is something that we really skim over when we talk about hematology and oncology in medical school and in residency, and it's incredibly important. And I think the stuff we're going to talk about today is really useful for anyone in emergency medicine, internal medicine, or hemoc.
2: And, you know, I think it's so demonstrative, too, of of the idea. You may hear some of your hematology attendings bristle at the idea of calling it benign hematology. Uh, You may want to say, oh, classical hematology or non-malignant hematology, mouthful that is. But you'll notice that many of the emergencies we talk about are, in fact, in that category of benign heme. So, um, yeah, I guess take that name with a grain of salt.
0: And listeners, I just want to point out that one of our hosts, Fivik, just bought a brand new house. So give him a round of applause on your own, of course, because we won't we won't hear it. But but Vida, congrats on the new home. That's awesome. Yeah, man. Congrats.
1: Yeah, yeah, thanks, guys. I mean, the the problem with buying a new home, though, in this crazy market is, one, you spend way too much money on it, but two, more importantly, the subcontractors and builders just don't really care that much anymore. So we straight up moved in, and right when we moved in, there was a sewage backup, and kind of this nice little sewage water flooded our first floor of our brand new home, so... You know, that was a, a nice intro to home ownership, but I've learned a whole lot about homeowners insurance and builders and subcontractors. And, uh, you know, it's it's been a learning experience, but things are good now. We've got the drywall replaced, got the floors replaced, and ready to get, get moving forward with our lives.
2: Yeah, the uh, building regulators uh, have a lot less power than the developers in the general Rouleau University area. So, that's what you get.
0: Gosh, that sounds less than ideal, but... We're glad everything's okay, and, you know, hopefully this is the first and last issue that you guys face in this new home, but that's certainly, certainly very exciting. Um, Well, listeners, let's go ahead and get started with the first of our heme uh, emergencies in our Hemonc Emergencies series. Here we go. Hey, guys. How's everyone doing today? Doing great. Yeah. Good, good. Well, you know, I've I've got another another good one for you today. Another good case for you all. You ready? Yeah, definitely. All right, perfect. So this is a case that I saw um, a couple of weeks ago, and so I kind of wanted to get your thoughts. So this is a 33 year old female with no significant past medical history who came into the emergency room with a one week history of some bruising on her lower extremities, and she had gum bleeding. Her CBC was significant for a white blood cell count of 6,000. She had a normal differential, a hemoglobin of 12.5, but her platelets were 5. And so that was the consult to me is, you know, patient comes in with some gum bleeding, thrombocytopenia, platelets less than 5, what do we do? Um, and so I was kind of wondering what your general approach is in situations like this. Because if I recall back to our thrombocytopenias episode, you know, five is kind of that super scary zone where we kind of worry about the possibility of spontaneous bleeding, especially things like intracranial bleeding. So it got me worried.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I think this is a pretty common consult that we get in the benign hematology world. I think when I was in residency, I didn't see this as much. Maybe I saw one or two patients with a platelet count less than five. And I think this is a really important scenario that we really break down for everybody because this does fall into our hematology emergencies where, like Ronick said, you can just have a spontaneous intracranial hemorrhage. And actually, you know, right now I'm, I'm on a consult service and one of the patients we're seeing had a platelet count less than five and ended up having a spontaneous subdural hematoma. So you just really important to really work through this. So my main question to you, Ronak, is what would you start off and what are you thinking about with a case
0: like this? Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Well, again, um, in our thermostatopenia episode, we had talked about a general framework, at least in terms of developing differentials for situations where you have thermostatopenia. So again, just a brief recap would be essentially thinking about it like a pre-bone marrow, intra-bone marrow, or post-bone marrow process pre- bone marrow would be things that would cause impairments in the ability of the of the bone marrow to produce uh, th- platelets so that would be nutritional deficiencies and such intra being more bone marrow failure um, disorders and post would be more of a consumptive or destructive process. So with that in mind, um, that's kind of how I approach the situation.
2: Yeah and you know I think it's never wrong to just go ahead and repeat that platelet count, uh, or the whole CBC up front, you know, it would, it would be a shame to go down this huge rabbit hole with all this other testing. If you just had a spurious lab to start, but I agree with you, this is enough of an emergency that we probably do have to get some things cooking. And I definitely want to see a smear right away.
0: Yep. Yep. And that's exactly the first thing that I did was, you know, we had previously highlighted the importance of the smear. Cause again, if you're, if you're seeing things like clumping, um, that could maybe suggest this is, you know, a spurious value, if you're seeing schistocytes, well, that completely changes uh, our approach and management because it kind of sends off our spidey senses that something a little bit more severe is probably happening. We also went ahead and repeated the the CBC, also did a citrated platelet count to eliminate the possibility of platelet clumping, um, and then also send uh, off some, some studies um, to ensure that there was no hemolysis as part of the picture. And then you know, as we had previously discussed as well, just setting off basic uh, HIV, hepatitis serologies, just to ensure that you know a viral etiology is not the cause of this thrombocytopenia.
1: And this is a great recap to shout out back to that episode where we're really thinking about, you know, hey, the, one of the most important things that Dan talked about was looking at that smear. Are there plate? Is this a true platelet count less than five? Or I'll. Is this a lab artifact? or the platelets clumped? You can see that on the smear, and the citrated platelet count will help you determine whether this is a true platelet count that's very, very low. The one thing I do want to say is the differential diagnosis for an undetectable platelet count, assuming that you've confirmed it, is a little bit different than our general thrombocytopenia framework. There's only a few things that can really make your platelet count this low. One thing we talked about, the lab artifact of clumping, The other things that are important to think about are something like a very severe DIC, something like TTP, or thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura, and that's something where both of those disorders, where you'll see those schistocytes or fragmented red blood cells. Heparin-induced thrombocytopenia or HIT. And then lastly, and actually a very common cause, when you look at really once we get down into this very, very low platelet range, One of the most common causes is ITP, or immune thrombocytopenic purpura, and that can either be drug-induced ITP, viral-induced ITP, or just out of nowhere, some sort of primary autoimmune ITP. And so that's really important to keep in mind. So remember, platelet count less than 5, severe DIC, TTP, HIT, ITP. And those are really the things that we're thinking about in this situation.
2: Yeah, and even among those, I, I'd agree with you. I think that, um, you know, TTP and HIT both have more commonly higher platelet counts. In fact, having this low of a platelet count would kind of get you a lower 4T score if you were evaluating for the possibility of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. And uh, I also want to point out, I think it's great that you're thinking about hemolysis. Even though this woman came in with a CBC showing a reasonably normal hemoglobin, you don't know what it was, you know, two days ago. And so uh, she she could be dropping. You just don't know what that trajectory is. with The single data point. So you got to be thinking about that.
0: That's that's a that's a great point. And so as we've been saying plenty in in our show to date, a good history is going to be critical here, and that includes assessment of any prior lab values. So in in, in this case, you know, we had uh, fortunately found that she wasn't hemolyzing based on the blood work. And there were no schistocytes seen on the smear. The repeat CBC and the saturated platelet count continued to show this abnormality of having a, a platelet count less than five. And although it came back a couple days later, the HIV and the hepatitis serologies were also negative. So, you know, it seemed less likely that something like clumping. Was a part of the the picture that hit seemed unlikely. She had no prior um, heparin exposure, so we did a four T score on her, and, and you know she had scored very uh, very low. TTP is also lower again, given the lack of schistocytes, and and we'll talk more about TTP in a future episode to kind of go through that because I think that's a very important disease state to discuss as well. Um, and then given the normal coagulation factors and lack of schistocytes. And the fact that she didn't look that unwell, DEIC also seemed kind of less likely in this situation. So, you know, we had gone down the most likely differential diagnosis in this case being ITP. And so from my understanding, ITP is truly considered a diagnosis of exclusion. But in your experience, are there certain tests or things that you can do to kind of provide further evidence that ITP is the most likely situation in a clinical scenario? One of the things that you can do
1: is, it's and it's an easy sort of proof of concept test, where you can transfuse a unit of platelets and recheck the platelet count about 30 to 60 minutes after. If your platelet count is still less than five, that really means that either you know, in in some situations, the body's consuming the platelets extremely rapidly. But more commonly, it's being cleared by some sort of immune mechanism—an immune-mediated clearance of your platelets. And so, transfusing you into platelets and a post-transfusion platelet check, thirty to sixty minutes after, if you didn't see a budge in those platelets, that really raises your concern for ITP. This is by no means a gold standard test, but it's a really easy thing to do, and it can give you a lot of information. And this is very similar in the way we diagnose alloimmunization of platelets. And this is a scenario where patients who are heavily pre-transfused form antibodies against donor platelets. So meaning that, you know, it's normal to see a foreign tissue and form an antibody against it. And in patients who are very heavily pre-transfused, they can form antibodies against those platelets. And it's a very similar pathophysiology of ITP. And that's why this test is pretty good for both scenarios that you transfuse a unit of platelets, check the platelet count 30 to 60 minutes later. If that platelet count didn't budge, then that makes you think that, hey, there are some antibodies that are causing destruction of those platelets.
2: Yeah. And by and large, you know, since we don't have well-established Coombs equivalent tests for platelets, where you're looking to see if a patient's serum is reactive against test platelets, uh, the way that you do with the Coombs test, you know, it's It really is often a diagnosis of exclusion, uh, unless you can do a maneuver like, you know, trying a transfusion of platelets and checking a a post-transfusion CBC. So sometimes after you've ruled out all the really dangerous stuff, you also just go ahead and try empiric treatment for ITP. And if they respond, you can say, well, that's probably what it was. And
1: getting to that, what Dan just said, that it's a diagnosis of exclusion, that's so important if the platelet count is, let's say, 20 or 30 you definitely do not want to hang your hat on this transfusion unit of platelets and see what their response is. This is really talking about that patient who has a platelet count less than five. And even then, like Dan said, we want to rule out the really scary stuff, make sure there's no schistocytes, and there's no concurrent hemolytic anemia that would make you concerned for TTP. Even though it's less likely, that's a you cannot miss diagnosis.
2: Yeah, and oftentimes the platelet transfusion will be contraindicated in some of these microangiopathic hemolytic anemia sort of Pictures, there's this thrombotic microangiopathies. So you really want to make sure that you have no suspicion at all before you start transfusing platelets.
0: Well, so then in this case, again, because it seemed less likely that any of these super duper scary things were as likely the etiology, and we went down this ITP uh, pathway, we went ahead and we decided to treat this patient with IVIG and dexamethasone steroids. So You know, my understanding is that this is the standard of care in terms of treatment. You give one gram per kilogram every 24 hours for two days of IVIG. And then on top of that, we also tend to give steroids at 40 milligrams daily for four days. Is this your standard approach? Is there other things that you guys have seen? And as a follow-up question, is there ever a, a reason to... Do just steroids, for instance, and not give the IVIG, um, or is it better just to always give both in tandem?
2: You know, usually when you have a patient that's sick enough to be in the hospital and you're seeing them sort of in an inpatient setting, you do tend to want the rapid rise in platelet count that you expect with treatment with IVIG. That's that's really what you get with uh, adding IVIG to your therapy plan. Is that it tends to affect a much quicker response, uh, and when a patient's platelet count is this profoundly low? that's something you really need to try for. But, you know, if we were talking about a patient with a platelet count in the 30s, 40s, and you've ruled out everything else and you're pretty sure it's ITP, doing steroids alone is fine. It spares them an IV therapy. And, of course, IVIG has its downsides too. There's risk for thrombosis and other things. So so if you can avoid that, that's great. But, again, oftentimes when they're this sick, you just need to pull the trigger on it.
1: And I think one of the most important takeaways of that is that IVIG is purely a rescue therapy. Alone, it won't sustain high platelet counts. It just helps you get to a higher platelet count faster. So it helps you get a quicker response. So that's why we do use IVIG as a rescue therapy, but not a monotherapy. And the steroids are doing a lot of the work. And we've got the trial that really looked at why you do this really high dose of dexamethasone, 40 milligrams daily, which seems crazy, times four days, As opposed to doing a mig per kg of prednisone with a long taper, the rate response rates and complete response rates were actually better with this pulse dose dexamethasone, which is why we end up going with that strategy.
0: Well, you know, in this case, after the IVIG and the dexamethasone, thankfully, our patient's platelets started improving within just a few days. Um, I think by by day two, we started seeing a, a steady rise in her platelets. And, you know, by, by day three, she was up to 50. By day four, she was uh, about 90. And so we felt comfortable with her following up with us in the outpatient setting. And On a repeat check I had just checked this morning um, in her chart, she's back up to the 150s, 160s kind of consistently on her outpatient check. So again, in this case, all the more leverage for how ITP was probably the correct diagnosis in her. And so thankfully for her, things had resolved.
2: You know, I'm glad this case turned out so well for you. In the course of your workup, something you might see sent off from time to time, depending on if it's available at your center. I certainly never saw this until I came to Rouleau University. It wasn't available where I did residency. You can get an immature platelet fraction, which is kind of like the reticulocyte equivalent for platelets. And if you're thinking about a process where platelets are getting destroyed in the periphery, that should be highly elevated, right? Like your body is trying to compensate, trying to make all these platelets. So the immature platelets will be very high. And now that's not always the case with ITP, depending on where the destruction is happening. Sometimes it happens early enough in the course of a platelet's life that even the immature platelets are getting taken out. So you can't really, you know, you can't hang your hat on You can't say this is, this is a be-all and end-all of testing. But it's another data point that you have to support your case. If you see a very highly elevated immature platelet fraction and the rest of your picture is looking like ITP, it's just another piece of data you have to support that.
0: Awesome. Well, that's certainly good to know. And it's also good to know that we have it here at Rural University. So I will have to use that the next time I'm on consults, for sure.
2: And, you know, to to that same end, having that many immature platelets or young platelets around, it's sort of an interesting feature of ITP, uh, because a lot of times classically, the, the patients will have less bleeding than you'd expect for the the low platelet count that they have. So you can have patients with the platelet count of seventeen thousand and they may not even be bleeding from their gums when they're brushing their teeth or anything else like that. The thought behind it is that some of these younger, bigger platelets are just more active and are able to do their job better than the normal platelets that you have kicking around.
1: Just learn things from Dan Houserath every day. Oh, I, that's I, I never that's knew fascinating. It. That makes so much sense. Yeah. It makes absolutely. so much sense.
0: Guys, I want to thank you once again for another great discussion um, on ITP this time. The first of our discussions about heme emergencies as part of our heme onc emergency series. Uh, I, you know, I once again have learned plenty, and it was nice to have a little bit of a refresher about thrombocytopenias as one of the scary things that we need to be worried about uh, when we're on call. Yeah, and one of the really good things
1: about this case is that A platelet count less than five is a special scenario of a hematologic emergency where there's a narrow differential diagnosis, and identifying whether something is something like a severe DIC, a TTP, HIT, or ITP is really important in this scenario because you want to get those platelets higher as soon as you possibly can so that the patient doesn't bleed.
0: Well, these are certainly great takeaways, uh, Vivek. Thanks for the reminder. And... Any lasting thoughts, guys? All right. Well, then, I think that just about wraps up another great episode of The Fellow on Call. Until next time, everyone, we'll see you later. See you later.
2: Bye.